He is risen. I love that so much. I'm going to just let you know on the front end. I'm going to throw that at you several times, so be ready. I will also, uh, I, I almost said I will shame you if, you if you miss it, which isn't something I should say, but it is what I kind of mean. So I didn't say it, but I'm just letting you know that uh, I will be tossing it out a couple of times because all over the world today, church families are joining the body of Christ with that call and response. This is the best news that we could hear. The rule and reign of God is here now. The kingdom of God is now, even though we are waiting for the not yet. Jesus, Messiah, has taken the burden of sin upon himself, paid the price for us, and opened the path of reconciliation with the living God. This is a day of victory. This is also a day that for us, in in terms of like the church calendar and our time together, this is the new year. So happy new year! We, we, thank you. I didn't expect that, but I'm, I, we're kind of getting into that vibe of, of responding, so I appreciate that. Um, but this is the new year for us. This isn't the end of anything. In fact, Easter is not proof of life after death. It's the beginning of life after death. This is a really important distinction because with this event, everything has changed. Jesus has, has rebuilt the place where heaven and earth intersect. And so this is not proof of life after physical death. This is the beginning of life. The beginning of life, the inbreaking of life. The life that defeats death. Now for the last 14 weeks, I can't believe it's been 14 weeks. You think about how um, we've just been counting this down. We started 14 weeks ago taking a journey through the Gospel of John. The story of the life and ministry of Jesus that was recorded by the disciple John, eyewitness testimony of this good news found to be true. Today we're continuing that journey by reading the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. But before we jump into that in John chapter 20, let's take a moment to recall the gravity of this event that we celebrate today. See, Jesus Christ's resurrection represents a demonstration of the power of God. It's also the confirmation of the divinity of Jesus Christ, and it's grounds for hope for all Christian believers, grounds for hope for all the believers that have come before, all the believers that are now, and all the believers that will be. Our hope is grounded in this place. All of this, the demonstration of power, the confirmation of divinity, and the grounds for hope, all packed into an historical event that lays the foundation for renewed relationship with God. Jesus Christ's resurrection was a demonstration of God's glory as well as an event that glorifies. The power of God is demonstrated in this event, but this event also gives weight to the felt presence of God. We see the power of God the Father in the resurrection. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to all those he called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Luke wrote in Acts, 
When they had done all that the prophecies had said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Paul again in Colossians says, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. But with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. We see the power of the Father, but also with the power of the Father comes the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 1, verse 4, And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter, in 1 Peter, writes, Christ suffered for our sins one once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also testifies to the absolute power of God because even death cannot sustain. Death cannot sustain itself in the midst of God's plan for creation. His plan included this event because of the testimony of love that is evidenced in the atoning death and the resurrection. This becomes our basis of hope and our basis for faith. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, and if, if Christ has been raised, I'm sorry, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the foundation of our hope and faith. Romans chapter 4. He was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with God. Again in 1 Corinthians. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Luke in Acts chapter 26 says that the, the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. This is the basis of our hope and our faith. But also, as the foundation of hope and faith, the resurrection is the opening of a new era. While it's the third day after the death of Jesus, it's the first day of new reality. It's the first day of a new reality of the felt, weighty presence of God. So let's watch that unfold together as we get into John chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. 
Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they all went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. We've been looking for glory in the Gospel of John, and it doesn't get more glorious than this moment right here. Mary is feeling the weight of the presence of God as she stands in the midst of the risen Savior. And it's fitting that she would be the first to do so. The fact that she is the first one to encounter the the risen Christ is is really, is not only telling, but it's also something that, that should make sense. Let's take stock for a moment about what we know about Mary, about the real Mary Magdalene that that really existed and really knew Jesus, the the woman that that actually lived and walked on this earth, that walked into the tomb. A lot has been assumed about Mary Magdalene, and it's led to a lot of of historical narrative that is more conjecture-laden tradition than evidenced reality. Now, it's typically the case with, with these kinds of stories. Her story doesn't need to be uh, conjecture-filled in order to be impactful. This is a pretty awesome story. But over time, some things have been added to her that maybe weren't exactly true. See, there's no evidence that this Mary is either a prostitute, the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet in, in Luke chapter 7. There's also no evidence that this is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Many people think this of Mary Magdalene because of uh, the 6th century Catholic Pope Gregory the Great uh, used his authority to kind of pronounce that this was the case about Mary, even though the scriptures don't give us anything to, to tie this to, to, uh, to create the same conclusion. So we're going to debunk Gregory the Great a little bit this morning as we look at, at really who Mary was and why this is important. We don't need conjecture to see the power of the intentionality that led Mary to be the one to show up at the tomb first. This is intentional that she would be there so early on the first day of the week. The truth about this woman is that that when she first met Jesus, 
She was separated from God by sin. Whatever that sin was, the forces of darkness had impacted her beyond the place of human rescue. We see this of Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. A quick side note on this that is really um, means nothing to our time together, but I think that if I ever were to have either a son or a Labrador retriever, Chusa would be a pretty awesome name for that. But that's neither here nor there. Um, looking at, at Mary Magdalene, though, this is, what, this is what we've got of Mary Magdalene. Now, whether the number seven, as it applies to, to the demonic, uh, whether it's literal or it's just utilized as some sort of symbology, it doesn't matter. What we know is that there's a, she's got a lot of demons. The presence of a lot of demons means that there's probably the presence of a lot of sin. She's separated from God. When she first meets Jesus, Jesus delivers Mary from the forces of darkness and demonstrates the power of God as he pulls her out of the most dire of circumstances. So the message of Mary is clear. No one is ever too far gone from salvation. No one is too far separated from the love of God to be rescued from darkness because he is risen. The first one the intentional first one to encounter the risen Lord is this woman drowning in the consequences of sin, drowning in the reality of death, rescued by Jesus. Now, this woman is standing before the risen Lord, and her testimony, I love this, her testimony is now a part of the fabric of our faith. Because we are invited to know the same rescue that Mary Magdalene had. Mary, the first one. Now let's look at John, the author of the gospel, and thus able to give himself the title of the one that Jesus loved. Mary finds Peter and John. And, and like any man writing about a race that he participated in, he, he makes sure that the world knows that he beat Peter to the tomb. He makes sure that he says it twice, just in case we missed it, he beat Peter to the tomb. At first, though, he stops at the door, right? So he beat him to the tomb. We know that. He makes that point, but he stops at the door. Peter, coming in like with the, the finesse of a rhino, goes all the way into the tomb, but John stops at the door and looks in. And if, if you caught this, as we went through the narrative of what happened, 
these words just they hit different when we read them in the context of the day. John follows Peter inside and believes. That's all he wrote. He went inside and believed. Until that moment, he did not understand what the previous three years had meant. Until that moment, he didn't understand what a Messiah truly was. He didn't understand the role of Messiah. He didn't understand what was happening. He didn't understand his life. He didn't understand his place in this world. He didn't even understand scriptures that he had heard so many times in his life. He didn't understand scriptures like Isaiah 53 that he had, would have heard so much. He didn't understand that Isaiah 53, all of the prophets, all of the wisdom pointed to the Messiah, and Jesus was the Messiah. He did not understand the words of Jesus and all the teachings. He didn't understand the time that they had together. He didn't understand even the, the narrative events and even the building of the week that he had just experienced. He didn't understand all of the intensity that was rising up. He didn't understand until he stepped into the tomb and saw the burial clothes on the tomb, on the table. He saw and then he believed. So, so far we've got the woman that was rescued, Mary, who loved Jesus so much she was first to the tomb. We have John, the disciple that Jesus loved, and who loved Jesus as the first to believe. And then Peter. I am so thankful for Peter. I I love Peter, and I also am just, uh, I'm aware of, of how often I have done this, but, but Peter is often presented through his weakness and through his instability. Often he's presented through his passion and ignorance. He's often remembered also by the biggest failure of his life. That is a heavy burden to imagine being remembered for the biggest failure only. And often, that's how he's presented. His biggest failure of his life was also perhaps the most egregious sin that one could commit. Peter is guilty of denying Jesus three times. He's guilty of denying knowing Jesus. He's guilty of denying loving Jesus. He's guilty of standing in the presence of Jesus and denying him in order to save his own skin. Now, the story of that, the story of, of what Peter did, what happened in the early morning darkness of Friday, would have widely been known by this time on Sunday morning. Uh, people saw it, right? So even the 12 would know. Now, granted, the 12 had their own, you know, um, fleeing and, and acts of cowardice th themselves. But what Peter had done, the denial uh, that Peter had committed, would be known to the twelve. 
That would by now be known to, to even an extended uh, uh, group of people, those on the periphery. They would know what, what Peter had done. And by all rights, with the knowledge of Peter's failure, we could expect him at this point to be cast out into the dumpster of religious history. He failed. But even with the knowledge of what he had done, he's still leading. William Barclay captures it this way. He says, there must be something outstanding about a man who could face his fellow men after that disastrous crash into cowardice. There must be something about a man whom others were prepared to accept as a leader even after all of that. So Peter arrives at the tomb without hesitation, probably didn't even slow down, just goes straight into the tomb. It's such a Peter move. We could call it like Peter courage. There's a place for that. Peter's story continues in John 21, and we're going to unpack that even more next week. But what we see today is that Peter is not defined by his failure. The transformative power of the resurrection is real and being displayed by the first three that learn of it. What Peter finds, as well as what Peter doesn't find, is important for us to grasp. What Peter found and didn't find leads us to the reality that this is not a spiritual resurrection. Jesus had risen from a dead body. This reality is going to frustrate both the Jewish and Roman authorities, and we have this even evidenced, captured in in historical documents that are outside of of church tradition, their frustration at at trying to to quell what was happening, trying to to tamp down the, the narrative, looking for the body so they could actually prove he is really dead. There was no body. Jesus had risen bodily. This was not spiritual. This was a bodily resurrection. We also know this. No one disputed the death. Jewish literature, Roman literature, the eyewitnesses, nobody disputed the fact that Jesus had actually died. Too many people saw it. Too many eyewitnesses testified to the real bodily death of Jesus Christ. The body died, but he is risen. Almost got you. This is the first fruits of victory over death. So what does this testimony mean for us today? What is the resurrection to us in this time and place? This is the invitation to experience the weighty felt presence of the living God. The presence of of a God that would love so much that nothing we could do would ever disqualify us from the God that knows us and moves towards us when we seek him. The God that sees beyond our masks of brokenness. The God that wants to live with us, be in community with us, to party with us. 
The God that would choose to die in horrific fashion to make that relationship possible. But then, to ensure that no one that has faith in him would ever feel the pain of separation, that, won't, that no one that has faith in Jesus should ever know death, he is risen. We're going to get this by Pentecost. The new year, the new era, the beginning that is the resurrection comes with the reality. And this is huge. You think about what this means for Mary. Seeing this for John, Peter as well, the beginning here is a reality that we're not in this alone. When we are faced with the same things that Mary was faced with, being met by Jesus in the most dire consequences, unable to be rescued by humans. We are not alone. The intersection of heaven and earth means not only that God is with us, but we have each other as the church. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, breaks into reality by becoming evidence of our righteousness with God. So today means everything. The death of Jesus means that the penalty for sin is covered, that because of God's love for us, we have been justified in his sight. Our guilt has been answered for. The resurrection means that that now we stand in victory with Jesus in new life. A life lived with God as a center of order, with us in right relationship with him and with each other. Now the place where heaven and earth intersect is us, the church. We've been invited into this kingdom and assigned the task of advancing it into the hearts of all those who don't yet know the good news, because he is risen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and as we turn back to worship, I'm just going to invite you, if you are hearing this story for the first time, if you're hearing this good news for the first time, or if this is the first time that you're accepting this good news as your own, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I admit to you that I have tried to be the author of my own life. I've separated myself from you, and I've tried to fill the void with things that are not of you. I confess that I am a sinner. Jesus, I know you paid the price for my sin. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you did what you say you did. I accept you as my God, as my Savior, and I invite you to be the center of my order. Amen. As we continue in worship, I'm going to invite the the prayer team to come forward. And I'm going to invite you, if anybody that would need prayer for anything, to come forward. Whether it's accepting this as your story for the first time. Whether it's renewing this story. 
whether it's a need for healing, whatever it might be, anything that you might need prayer for, as we worship, I'd invite you to come forward, even if it's just to feel the love of a family. Let's worship.